We've come in our study through Ephesians to the closing verses of the the book, and Paul lets us know where we are in chapter 6 and verse 10 with the word, finally. Now, many times when we hear a preacher say something like, and finally, or in closing, I'd just like to say, we oftentimes begin to close our Bible and gather our things and plan our way of escape. But you can't do that with the Apostle Paul, especially in the book of Ephesians. I mean, some of the letters that he wrote... Uh, He closed with personal statements like greetings to so-and-so or or, uh, when you come, bring my coat and my books. But Ephesians is not that way because it's not written to one local church. It's written to a group of churches. And so rather than starting to slow down at the end, Paul actually accelerates. In 1655, William Gurnall published his treatise entitled The Christian in Complete Armor, It was an exposition of Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. It encompassed three volumes, 261 chapters, and 1,472 pages, based on 11 verses. He dedicated the book to his parishioners as but a mite and a little present to them. Now, I say that to say this, there's a lot in these verses. And I also say that to say this, if you think I'm kind of wordy, You could have had this guy as a teacher. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written an eight-volume commentary on Ephesians, which I have in my library. The last two volumes are on these closing verses of Ephesians. And so from the point where Paul says, finally, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes a fourth of his commentary, 736 pages. You say, well, what is it that's in these verses? Well, these verses are about the spiritual warfare. The first three chapters of Ephesians describe the Christian seated in heaven in Christ, abounding in exhaustless wealth as an heir of God. The last three chapters continue with the Christian walking worthy of that calling in loving and joyous fellowship with other believers and in the strength and peace of a harmonious home. And we might think that the letter should end there, but when we come to chapter 6 and verse 10, we get a complete change of scene and atmosphere. We are suddenly transplanted from the restful shelter of the home to the rigorous warfare of a battlefield. And this passage is packed with truth because it speaks to you right where you're at. Now, not every passage does that. We talked at the end of chapter 5 about husbands and wives. We talked at the beginning of chapter 6 about parents and children. And you may have been sitting here saying, well, I'm not married. Or, I don't have any children. But this passage speaks to every Christian. Because no matter where you are in your Christian life, whether you're old, young, mature, immature, this relates to you because we are all on the battlefield. And it's the kind of passage that reaps immediate results. Because when you heed the challenges given here, you will see and experience victory in your daily life. Now in verses 10 to 13, we have a description of the warfare in general terms. And then when we come to chapter 14 and following, we get it in more specific terms. This morning I want to look at those general statements in verses 10 to 13. And we can divide them into four points. Our power our preparation, our enemy, and our strategy. First of all, our power. Notice verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, in this warfare that Paul is introducing, where is my strength? It's in the Lord. 
You see, I don't have a chance in this warfare on my own. Jesus said in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And in contrast to that, Paul said in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do nothing on my own. I can do all things through him. Our power source is the Lord. And I think the reason that Paul mentions the power source first is because it's the key. There are a lot of Christians that get beat up in the battle because they never understand this concept of being strong in the Lord. And I talk to a lot of Christians and they say, well, I just can't live the Christian life. And I can't seem to handle the temptations. And I can't, and I can't. And I say to them, you're right. You can't. But the Lord can. He is our power source. He is the key to victory. And that's why when Paul prayed for us in the first chapter, this was his prayer beginning in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. His prayer was that we might know God's power. You see, he is the source of our power. And Paul opens the book praying that we'll realize it. He closes the book challenging us that we will utilize it. And how do we utilize his power? By being strong in the Lord. We have to be in close relationship to him. You see, he's already won the victory in this war. 1 John 3, 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You say, well, how did he do that? Hebrews 2, 14 says, Since... The children share in flesh and blood. He partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. How did he defeat the devil? By his own death on the cross. He won the victory at the cross. And so the war has already been won by the Lord Jesus and there's no excuse for us to be losing battles along the way. You see, we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ. And Romans 8, 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And so the key to this warfare is to realize where my power lies. It's in the Lord. See, there's no room... For self-confidence. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So you are most vulnerable when you think you're not. You say, well, how do I become strong in the Lord? Well, that's real simple. You become strong in the Lord by first becoming weak in yourself. You say, I can't but he can. Paul taught us that in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said, the Lord told me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected where? In weakness. And so Paul said, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's only when I come to the end of my strength that I come to the beginning of His. 
And that's a hard lesson for us to learn because we tend to be very self-sufficient. We tend to be confident in our own strength. We're having the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. I don't know if you saw the opening ceremony. But representatives, athletes from every nation in the world entered into the stadium there, and it was quite a scene to see them all coming in. And there you had in this one stadium gathered all these representatives from every nation of the world, and it was a moving scene. In fact, uh, if you saw the television, you saw the president actually shedding tears. It was so moving at that moment. And I guess the thing that struck me was that once they got into the stadium, the whole event sort of took on a religious flavor. And they had a choir there, and they sang very moving songs, and they even had symbolism involved in the lighting of the torch. And I couldn't help but think, what more fitting opportunity for them to just look up and say, thank you, Lord, we worship you. But it didn't happen. And if you listen to the words of the songs, the songs were exalting the human spirit and celebrating the accomplishments and dreams of man. And so the whole event was a salute to the strength of man. And what was ironic to me was that while they were so busy patting man on the back for all his strength, they chose to have the oldest living medalist come up. I think he was 97 years old. And he got a standing ovation as if he had accomplished some great event by living 97 years. And then it was kind of like people were just amazed that in his own strength, he could actually walk up on the stage at 97 years old. Probably amazed he could even find the stage at 97 years old. And it was ironic to me because here we are celebrating the strength of man and here comes this guy and... uh, He's been beaten down by 97 years, but even more ironic, I think, was the fact that they chose Muhammad Ali to actually light the flame. Here was the fellow who always said, I am the greatest. And now he's suffering from Parkinson's disease, and he's shaking so badly that you're worried that he might even drop the torch. And so as they celebrate the strength of man, it's rather ironic that the message that came across to me was the feebleness of man. The man is so frail that he's actually defeated by the common enemies of time and disease. And it should be very evident to us that in our own strength, we're not going to handle this spiritual battle. Our power lies in the Lord. And we need to say with David in Psalm 26, 7, the Lord is my strength. Second point is the preparation, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God. Here's the call to arms. Our strength is in the Lord, but that doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. In His strength, we are to put the armor on. You see, there's no place for spiritual pacifists. There's no place for conscientious objectors in the spiritual war. You say, well, I thought when you become a Christian, you're delivered from the kingdom of Satan and he can't bother you anymore. I thought that when you become a Christian, all your problems are solved and everything's hunky-dory. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Because when you become a Christian, the battle really begins. Because you see, before that, Satan wasn't against you, you were on his team. 
Back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, we read that He is the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You were one of the sons of disobedience. Satan was working in you. Now, Christ is working in you, and Satan is attacking. And so the way that we prepare ourselves for the battle is to put the armor on. Now, I'd like you to notice something. Putting the armor on requires action. It's God's strength, and it's God's armor, but you have to put it on. And even though God's power is available, and God's armor is available, if we do not put it on, we are going to lose the battle. And when we get down to verse 14, we're going to see that this armor is not physical armor, it is spiritual armor. Essentially, it is putting God's truth to practice in our lives. It essentially is taking the facts of God and fleshing them out in our lives. Let me ask you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 for a moment. And here's an example of this very concept. This is the chapter where David volunteered to fight Goliath. And so when he volunteered, verse 38 says, Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. Saul said, You're going to go fight a giant. You better get some armor on. So Saul took his armor and put it on David. David tried it and said, this isn't going to work, and he took it off. You say, well, what's he going to use for armor? Well, if you go on to the passage, it says in verse 40, he took a stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the verses that follow describe how the Philistine approached him with all his armor and with his shield bearer in front of him. And when he got... In front of him and saw David, he said in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Verse 44, The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Pretty intimidating. David's out there with no armor on, facing a giant with armor and a shield bearer who's mocking him and telling him he's going to kill him, give his body to the birds. What does David do? Verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. You come to me in physical armor. David said, I'm coming to you in spiritual armor. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then notice verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into my hands. I love that. David is confident, but it's not self-confidence. He is confident in the Lord. In fact, if you look at verse 48, it says, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle. I love that phrase. It's time to fight. David ran into battle. Now, if you asked any of the Israelites in that army that day, if they believed that the battle is the Lord's, they would say, yes, the battle is the Lord's. But you see, they had not taken that fact and made it a reality in their lives. David had. 
And David not only knew that to be true, he was willing to believe it and act upon it. You see, that's what it means to get your armor on. It's to take the truths of God and make them a reality in my life so that I'm living by those things. Third point in Ephesians chapter 6 is our enemy. Having told us to put the armor on, you might expect Paul to go right into explaining the individual pieces of armor, but he doesn't do that. And the reason he doesn't do that is because he knows we're not ready for it yet. If he talked about the armor now, it would seem kind of unrealistic for him to be talking to us about armor because what he needs to, to do first is talk to us about the enemy. So he's going to talk to us about the enemy and then we're going to see how formidable our enemy is and then when he gets to the armor, we're going to be paying attention because we're going to realize that we need that armor against such an enemy as this. So having told us to be strong in the Lord and to get the armor of God on, Paul now tells us why at the end of verse 11. He says, in order that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The conflict is not against flesh and blood. That is, we are not fighting against other humans. If you ask most people who their biggest enemy is, they're probably going to point at people. You say, well, who's the biggest enemy we've got? People say, well, it's the communists. Or it's the terrorists that we've got out there. Or somebody may say, well, it's the Republicans. Or it's the Democrats. We could just get them to see the light. Who's your greatest enemy? It's the IRS. If we could just get big government off our back. Say, it's my wife and her family. It's our ancestors. It's our heredity. I mean, we're we're Irish, we're Italian, and, and this is the way we've always been. Oftentimes when we talk about enemies, we look at people. We see Paul goes beyond people to the real problem here, and he says the real enemy is not people. We are facing a much more formidable foe. We are facing spiritual beings, fallen angels. And Paul tells us four things about them in these two verses. Number one, he tells us that they're organized. We're not just facing one enemy. We're facing many. We're in a spiritual battle with the devil and a host of fallen angels. And it's evident by the titles that Paul uses in verse 12, calling them rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces, it's evident by those titles that they are organized. This is a hierarchy of evil spirits. And we know that their leader is the one mentioned in verse 11, the devil. Now the devil, or Satan as he's most often called in scripture, was not always the enemy of God. He was at one time God's top angel. In fact, in Isaiah 14, it refers to him as the star of the morning. And Ezekiel 28 refers to him as the anointed cherub. But in that position, he sinned because he desired to take the throne of God. And because of that, God threw him out of heaven along with a third of the angels who rebelled with him. Now, some people have the impression that Satan is omnipresent or omnipotent. That he has all power and he's everywhere. That's not the case. It just seems that way because he's so organized. 
he is a leader with, with ranks of army officials under him who carry out his wishes. And so our enemy is organized. Secondly, we can say that they're powerful. Notice those titles again. Rulers, powers, world forces. Those titles indicate power and authority on a worldwide scale. You see, though Satan has been defeated, he has not yet been destroyed. And he has not yet conceded defeat. He wields a lot of power. And that's why when Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, Satan took him up on a high mountain and says he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, these can all be yours if you'll bow down and worship me. Now, Jesus didn't say, those are not yours to offer. You see, they were his to offer. It wouldn't have been a temptation if they weren't his to offer. In fact, later in, the, in uh, John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus confirms that by calling Satan the ruler of this world. Our enemy is powerful. And then the third thing we can say about them is that they're wicked. Power in itself is neutral. It can be well used or it can be misused. Our enemies use their power destructively rather than constructively. They use it for evil rather than good, and that's why they're called the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness. Our enemies are wicked. And then the fourth thing we can say about them is that they're cunning. Paul tells us in verse 11 that we're up against the schemes of the devil. That is the wiles of the devil, the, the trickery. He's like a roaring lion, but he typically comes to us subtly like a serpent. He's the prince of darkness, but he disguises himself as an angel of light. He's a dangerous wolf, but he knows how to disguise himself as a sheep. He's cunning. And he comes to us with schemes. You say, well, what are the enemy's schemes? Well, we can look in Scripture and find several of them. One is, he likes to plant doubt in the minds of believers. First words he ever said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are, Did God say... Did God say that? What's that? Doubt. See, our greatest strength is trusting God. And He knows that. And so He tries to plant doubt in our minds so that we will not trust God. That's one of His schemes. A second scheme is devastation. Classic example in Scripture is Job. Satan came after him like a roaring lion and just took everything he had. His goal was thinking that if I can just wipe him out, he'll curse God. But it was a bad strategy because it did the reverse. When Job lost everything, he depended greater and deeper on the Lord. Third scheme of Satan is lies. In John 8, 44, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. He's a good liar. In fact, he's the best. You know what his best lie is? His best lie is to get people to believe that he doesn't exist. In fact, I'm convinced that as I talk about him today, there's probably some sitting here saying, you're insulting my intelligence by talking about Satan and demons. If that's the case, then he's doing a good job on you. In a Barna Research Group poll, Americans were asked if they believe that the devil or Satan is an actual living being 
only 24% said yes. More than three-quarters of people in the United States don't believe that Satan is an actual being, and I'm sure he's smiling at the results of that because he's glad to let you think he's a fictitious character with a red tail and a pitchfork because if he's got you there, he's got you right where he wants you. That's his best lie. His second best lie is to counterfeit the truth of God. It's to give you his lies packaged in quite a bit of truth so that you'll swallow it. And that's why 2 Corinthians 11 says he disguises himself as an angel of light. And Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6 shows us that he, he even quotes scripture. But what's his goal? Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, the goal is to present a different gospel. A gospel that is false doctrine, or as Paul says in another place, it's the doctrine of demons. And if you can't do that, if the gospel is preached, then we know from 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. And in Luke chapter 8 and verse 12, we're told that when the gospel is preached and it lands on somebody's heart, he comes along and he snatches it away. He lies. Fourth thing he does is he hinders ministry. Listen to this verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Paul says, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. Isn't that interesting? Paul is God's apostle. He says, I was planning to come to you several times, but Satan thwarted us. Satan actually hindered that ministry. He puts it another way in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says that he had a thorn in his flesh. And if you read that verse, he describes it this way. He says, it was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. He had a thorn in his flesh. Where did it come from? It came from the enemy. Why? To beat him up in his ministry. Satan hinders ministry. Another scheme that he does, and this is a primary one, is that he causes divisions. One of Christ's chief goals is that we might be united. That was his prayer in John chapter 17, that we might be one. Satan has the opposite goal. And that's why earlier in Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 26, we read this. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. What's that tell you? The devil wants to take your anger and turn it into resentment and bitterness and as a result of that, caused divisions between us. We see the same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he wants them to accept back the brother who had sinned, who had been put out of the church. And he says, when you accept him back, I want you to forgive him. And he gives this reason, 2 Corinthians 2.11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. See, Satan wants to take advantage of our unforgiving spirit to cause divisions among Christians. Sixth scheme we see in Scripture is persuading believers to trust in their own resources. Listen to this verse. This is 1 Chronicles 21.1. It says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Did you get that? David is God's king, God's man, the man after God's own heart. Satan stood up and moved him to number the people of Israel. Now, why did he number the people of Israel? Because he wanted to be able to compare his army with the armies of the nations around him. 
See, he wanted to start trusting in his own resources. And if you read that chapter, we find there that David confessed his sin, and interestingly enough, God brought a plague on Israel that killed 70,000 men. God said, you want to count? I'm going to reduce your numbers. Because I don't want you trusting in your numbers. I want you trusting in me. And that's a ploy that Satan uses often with us. When we get a little success, we start looking around saying, I think I'll count all that I've got. I think I'll see how I'm doing. And that's a dangerous thing to do because usually it means we start trusting in ourselves. We can even do that with our understanding of the Word of God. We start getting some knowledge of the Word of God and we start getting confident in our understanding of the Word of God and we stop trusting the Lord. In fact, that happened in the church at Ephesus. You can read about their future in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. And there, Jesus speaks to them and says, You're doing a whole lot of good things, and you're fighting false doctrine, but I have one thing against you. And what was that? You have left your first love. You've gotten involved in ministry and knowing the Word and fighting false teaching, but you've lost your power source. You've gotten away from me. Satan loves to do that in our lives. The seventh thing he does is he brings worldliness into our lives. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. And what did he lie to the Holy Spirit about? Money. Why? Because he wanted it. You see, Satan gave him a desire to love money more than God. And he does that often with Christians. He gets us flattered by the things of this world and and teases us with the things of this world. And pretty soon we're finding ourselves more attracted to things than to God. And then an eighth scheme that he uses covers everything else, and that is to disobey God's will. In 1 Timothy 2, 26, Paul talks about delivering those who have been caught in the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Satan has traps out there with bait in them, and people come along and get snared by that, trapped by that, and the result is that they end up doing his will will. Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. There's some truth behind that. People get caught in something they think isn't going to be harmful, and pretty soon it's addictive. And pretty soon they are doing his will rather than having any power to overcome it. So that's our enemy. They're not flesh and blood. In fact, as Paul says in verse 12, they operate in the heavenlies. Now, that doesn't mean they're off in heaven somewhere. It simply means that they're operating in the invisible realm. In fact, they're very close. And that's why the word he uses in verse 12 is, he says, our struggle. That's a word that literally means our wrestle. So we're wrestling with them. They're not off somewhere shooting scud missiles at us. We are in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. And they are organized, they are powerful, they are wicked, And they're cunning. Which brings Paul to the fourth point, and that is our strategy. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. We're not fighting a physical foe. We are fighting a spiritual foe. And so we need to get the spiritual armor on. Acts chapter 19 records an event that took place in Ephesus that these people would be familiar with. It was an event where... Some Jewish exorcists attempted to cast out demons, and apparently they weren't having a whole lot of success doing it their way. So they chose to approach it Paul's way, so they came to the demons 
and said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out. And the response from the evil spirit was, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And it says that the man in whom the evil spirit was jumped on them and beat them up, and it says they ran away naked and wounded. And there's a classic example of what happens when you go against spirit beings without any power and without any armor. Paul says, we've got a formidable enemy, therefore, you better get the armor on. And then he says, once you get the armor on, verse 13, then you will be able to resist in the evil day. See, there's our strategy. Our strategy is always to resist. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. James 4, 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what Christ did in the wilderness. Satan attacked him with temptation. He resisted, and the Bible says the devil left him. Now, how do I resist the devil? Well, it tells us in verse 13. He says, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist. How do we resist? We get the armor on. And notice, he says, we do so in the evil day. Now, when's the evil day? Well, some commentators say that's every day because we always live in the evil day. But from my own personal experience, I find that every day doesn't seem to be as evil as others. That Satan seems to deal with me in waves of opposition and then there are times when he recedes. And I see that in Scripture as well. Because when Jesus was tempted in Luke 4.13, it says, And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he hit him with all his ammunition and it didn't work, and so he backed away and looked for another opportune time. And that's the way Satan tends to attack us. And so I think when Paul's talking about the evil day here, he's talking about the day when it seems like the opposition just floods over us with attacks. Now, it really doesn't matter which way you view that, because practically speaking, since you don't know when the evil day is going to come, you've got to be ready every day anyway. Because we never know when that day is going to come when he attacks. So every day we've got to be ready. We've got to be prepared. And when he comes, we've got to have the armor on so that we can resist. And then he closes verse 13 with these words, and having done everything to stand firm. We put the armor on, we resist, and we stand. Now, he doesn't tell us to chase the devil. There's a lot of Christians out there today chasing the devil around trying to find him. You don't need to do that. If you're being effective for God and you're making an impact for Him, don't worry, He's going to find you. And when He does, Paul says, we don't faint, we don't fall, we don't flee, we stand. John Bunyan captured that idea in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. He says, when Christian reached the valley of humiliation, he spied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him, whose name was Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground. I like that. Christian saw the enemy coming and he thought, well, maybe I'll run. And then he remembered he didn't have any armor on his back. 
It was all on his front because God designed the armor for us to stand and resist the enemy. That's the strategy. I realize where my strength is. It's in the Lord. I put the whole armor of God on. I resist the enemy. And when the dust settles, I'm standing. You say, well, what's the armor? Well, we're going to look at that next week, beginning in verse 14. But I hope you're interested in it today by realizing what kind of enemy we face. We're going to go through it piece by piece and try to understand what that armor is beginning next Sunday.